If you have your Bible, you can open it up to uh, Psalm 51. That's where we'll be this morning. And we have a lot to get to, and I'm really excited, and expect me to get really yelly today. All right? Is yelly a, a proper word to use? I think it is. Uh, psalm 51 is, um, I go back and forth with my favorite psalms, um, but Psalm 51 has spent the most time at the top of the list. Um, we're in the middle of our series, Summer of Psalms, and so uh, what that means is we're taking the summer to read a psalm and study it each week, and this week is uh, perhaps the most important psalm that, we, that, that is of the 150 psalms because it, the, the gospel is so pure in these psalms, and there is uh, a lot to get to. This one, uh, Jeff and Dave have already talked about this morning, is centered around repentance, um, Martin Luther says this about repentance, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Um, you guys might know Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the uh, Wittenberg door. Um, 95 Thesis is just 95 statements about who God is and who we are in Christ. This was the first of those 95 statements, all right? Um, the entire life of the believer is rooted in this concept of repentance. And so if that's true, it's important for us to get to the bottom of what it means. Because I think if we've grown up in church or if we haven't grown up in church, chances are we have a a misconception of what repentance is. I spent most, I'm 42 years old, I spent most of my life thinking repentance was being really, really, really sorry for sin. And that has almost nothing to do with what repentance is. In fact, it's counter to what repentance actually is. Um, so we're going to deal with Psalm 51 in, in a bit, but I, I want us to, to get to the bottom of, of David has written this psalm. We'll do some, some background work to what brought David to the point to write this psalm. But before we do, I want to connect our hearts with David. We can all really connect with David. First of all, I want to say that as we read the story of David and what he did prior to Psalm 51, that there is no one in this room that is better or no one in this room that's worse than David. A little pre-sermon exercise here. I want you to look to your left. Everybody, look to your left. Look at that person to your left. Look at them. All right? Now look at that person to your right. Turn the other way and look at that person to your right. This is going way better than I expected, by the way. I expected like half of you to actually do that. Everyone did it. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. But here's the thing. Both those people on either side of you you just looked at is wrestling with sin in their life. We're going to look at a couple of sins that David committed that are just grotesque. And chances are the person on your left and the person on your right is wrestling and dealing with some sin that is just grotesque. And guess what? You are looked at. So we're, everyone in this room is wrestling with some sort of sin in their life. And it's important for us to connect with that. The second thing is that we can connect with David here is that we each, everyone in this room, everyone on this planet that's ever taken a breath has a deep need to repent. Deep need to repent. Let me read this for you. It's going to be on the, on the screen as well. Coming from the correct perspective, grounded in absolute knowledge of your acceptance... I want to stop for a second because this is really dangerous. If we really come to grips with our sin without having this foundational 
understanding of our complete and full acceptance in Christ, we can do ourselves a disservice. We're going to spend a lot of time thinking about David's sin, thinking about our own sin, and I've prayed that the Holy Spirit would come and convict us of particular sins that we walk in this room with this morning. And, And if we do that, if we really come to grips with our own sin, and we don't have a deep foundational knowledge of our complete and utter acceptance before God through the work of Christ, we can damage how we relate to God. Let me say this. If, if you have thrown yourself on the mercy of, of God and confessed that Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life and he lived the perfect sinless life to live a life that you couldn't live and now you have a relationship with God, that is over and finished. Jeff talked about it. We sang songs about it. It's foundational to what's happening in our lives. And if that's true, if we really believe that, and if that is at the core of how we've built our lives, then the rest of what I'm about to read is great. Let's start at the beginning. Coming from the correct perspective, all that stuff I just talked about, grounded in absolute knowledge of your acceptance. If that's true, apprehension of sin and the extent of your depravity can only heighten the value and severity and the grace of loving God. Do we, do you, are you connecting with that? If the, more, the deeper we dive into the extent of our depravity and the extent of our sin, the greater grace and mercy has to become. And if, if we truly understand foundationally that nothing can change our acceptance with God through the work of Jesus Christ, then any time we apprehend sin, we have to label that good. We have to label that great because we've plumbed the depths of the grace of God and the, the severity of the grace of God. We don't usually use the word severity and grace together, but the grace of God is really, really severe. And when we plumb the depths of our sin, the grace of God becomes even more and more severe. It's so valuable to us to come to apprehend the depth of our sin and the depth of our depravity. So that's a bit of the background. Now let's go to the, the backstory. I know I told you to go to, to Psalm 51, but I first want to go to 2 Samuel, uh, starting in chapter 11, and read the story of what happened to get David to this point. It's David and Bathsheba, and you've probably heard the story before. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. We'd like to give uh, a copy to you. And if, uh, if you'd really just like to read on the screen, it'll be on the screen as well. Uh, so David and Bathsheba, I want to make a couple of points out of, out of here, reading from 2 Samuel, verse 11. <clears throat> in the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they besieged, <clears throat> I'm sorry, and they, all the servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Just a little side note here. David is about to commit two really grievous, awful sins. And it starts here with failure to live out his mission. As the king, as the leader in battle, his job was to go and be on mission with his group, with his, with his people, with Israel. And what he was lazy, staying at home, serving himself. A lot of times people ask me how I defeat sin that's one of the greatest questions I get answered. I'm, I'm wrestling with this particular sin. How do I defeat it? My first response is, 
Are you living your life on mission? And foremost for you, if you're married, your mission is foremost the person you're married to. If you have children, how are you living on mission for your children? Chances are, I I want you to think about this. The last time you slipped up in the sin that easily entangles you, what was going on in your world? Were you ignoring something that you know God has called you to? Chances are you were. We fall easily to the sin that entangles us, that we always trip up on. We fall to that sin when we fail to rise to our mission, to live our life on our mission. If you don't have a mission, pray, ask God for one. If you don't have a mission, look around you. Look to your left, look to your right. Look at your school, look at your job, look at your work, look at your environment, look at your community, look at your neighborhood. There's your mission. Look at your spouse, look at your children, look at your parents, look at your friends, look at your family. There's your mission. And when we live our lives looking for ourselves, we are easily prayed to sin. When we live our lives on mission, it's really difficult. It's harder to to get tripped up by our sin. David's life is a perfect example of that here in this sin. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Did you read that? It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He was chilling when his people were risking their lives where he was supposed to be. He arose from his couch. You're wrestling with sin. Get off your stinking couch. I almost said a word I shouldn't have said there. But this is very important for us. I hope you hear passion in my voice. When David arose from his couch and was walking around the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. Lazy, awful, lustful David. And please don't hear me throwing stones at David because this is lazy, awful, lustful Rick. This is lazy, awful, lustful you. This is all of us. We connect with David. That's why we look to our left and look to our right because we are all David. And David sent and inquired about the woman. He had all the power, all the authority that he wanted. And some said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and he took her and she came to him and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David's laziness has led to lust, has led to adultery, has led to this woman being pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. He's going to try and clean up his mess. He is going to try to clean up his mess. Remember that when we talk about repentance not being born in you. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Silly nonsense when David really had an ulterior motive, we see in verse 8. And David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and then followed him and followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and did not go down to his house. 
When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and, and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in an open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you, surely as you live, as my soul lives, I will not do this thing. In other words, he's staying on his mission. His boss has told him to come back, but he's not going to go and enjoy the habits. The, he's not going to go and make himself lazy. He's going to stay on his mission. David had to feel, had to sense conviction here. Knowing what he was going to do. Verse 12. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him in. He knew he wasn't going to get off his own mission, so David had to help him get off his mission. So what did he do to him? Verse 13, and David invited him in, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And David got him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew the most valiant men were. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David and among the people and fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Failure to live on mission, giving into lust, adultery, pregnancy, murder. Flip over to chapter 12, one, one chapter over. We're going faster here because I want to get to Psalm 51, where the heart of this message is. Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord said to Nathan, and the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, let me pause for just a second and, and, and parenthetically insert this here. Um, Nathan is about to go and speak a harsh truth to the most powerful man in the world who could kill him like that. And Nathan rises because God has sent him on mission to go and do this. And here's the thing. Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm, and we're going to wrestle with it in just a minute. And it doesn't happen. Psalm 51 never gets written without what Nathan is about to do. Is God calling you to confront sin someplace? Is God, is that a mission that God has placed you on? Rise up to it. Psalm 51 doesn't get written without Nathan being obedient. What is God calling you to? Let's see Nathan's obedience and the harsh words that he brings to the man who had the authority to kill him, the man who just took another man's wife, got her pregnant, and killed, his, killed her husband. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and he, it grew up and with him and with his children. And he used to eat of, its morsel, of his morsel and drink of his cup, and it lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a man, a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, this, the man who has done this deserves to die. 
and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because of he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are that man. Bold words that God has given to Nathan to say to David, and the result is Psalm 51. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. He's listing all the things that God has given to David. You are anointed king of Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives and into your arms and gave you this house into your arms and that of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and you have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, we're going to talk about repentance and how how accepted we are with God, but there are consequences to sin. Here are the consequences of David's sin. Verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. You will always and forever be at war, and there will be an unsettling in your spirit for the rest of your life. Because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil from out of your own house. Your children will want to kill you. That's what happens later on in David's life because of this sin. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbors. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. In other words, everybody's going to know that your wife is unfaithful to you. Verse 12. That's going to be Michael, his wife, that comes later. Verse 12. For you did not, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel, before all the sun. They'll know what's going on in your life. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David's response is taking ownership for his sin. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. I want to, if you hear one thing this morning, this is what I want you to hear. Look at me, everybody. This is vastly important. What Nathan comes to David, presents him with his sin. David's response is, I have sinned before God. And Nathan's response to him is what? God tells me to tell you, I've put away your sin. Anytime Anytime, anytime, sin comes into your life and somebody says, you are at fault. There's something wrong with you. That is from the enemy. That is a lie. God has put your sin away. Do you hear me? Write it down. God has put your sin away. God has put your sin away. These awful things that David has done. God has put it away. Their consequences remain, but relationship that David has with God is unchanged. Whew, I told you I was going to get yelly. Sorry. It's so important for us because we hear that lie so much. I am less. I am worthless. I am a sinner. I am broken. There's something wrong with me. Yes, there is something wrong with you. You have sin in your life, but it has been put away. Psalm 51. Let's get to the heart of the message. I'm sorry we're like way late, but I'm trying to go fast. Let's go through this piece by piece. Psalm 51. David's journal entry after Nathan says this to him. 
And again, without Nathan doing what God told him to do, Psalm 51 never exists. This is a repentant David. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I want to point this out here. Have mercy on me, God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. We, you see David telling God to be who he is, reminding God to be who he is. God doesn't need reminding of who he is. David needs to remind himself of who God is. There is abundant, steadfast love that doesn't change, can't change, doesn't need to change. And there is great mercy that is inside of God. And all David is doing here is preaching to himself. Reminding himself of how great and powerful and glorious God's love and his mercy is to blot out his transgressions. This is all about repentance here. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I want to talk just for a second about repentance here again is that repentance is not us deeply feeling sorry for ourselves the word here the greek word the hebrew word for repentance is metanoeo and it really means a a change of essence of the way that we think all right that's what this word means so it's it's nothing it has nothing to do with our ability to change our minds or change our plans or change our thoughts it is God acting and us just simply throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. His mercy is steadfast. His love is steadfast. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, God has put away your sin and offers perfect relationship with him. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. This is repentance. Repentance is coming to the realization that you can't. Saying this, God, if you want to rid me of this sin, if you want to rid me of of my lust, of my selfishness, of my desires, of my deceitfulness, of of those things, you are going to have to come and change me. I can't do it myself. It's throwing yourself on the mercy of God. A.W. Pink says this about repentance. I am no more capable of doing better or turning over a new leaf than I am of creating a new world. Repentance is the job of God, not of you. You are no more capable of changing your behavior patterns than you are of creating a new world. You can't change your mind. You have a disease. It's called sin. It's called depravity. And God is the only one that can change it. We'll read the rest of this psalm and see how God is the acting one and we are the passive one throughout this whole thing. We are not capable of doing better or turning over a new leaf or changing we have to have god do that for us let's read verses three through five and see david acknowledging the the depths of his own depravity for i know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you and you only have i sinned and done what's evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment behold I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Um, Verses 3 through 5, here's what it is. Um, It's just a big circle. Imagine like we're like back in math class, and we're making circles and concentric circles, and who goes in what circle and all that. You with me? We're now in all this big circle. That's what David has just done for us. 
We're now all in this one big circle, sinful, grotesque. My sin is always before me. My transgressions are always before me. I'm never, ever going to escape them. I am a sinner in desperate need of you. We all, that's at the beginning, when we look to the right and to our left, we connect with David here. We are all this. Every one of us. We cannot escape the circle. And as a people, we are really, really comparing, comparing people. Comparison is something that, that happens to us all the time. And here's the fact. We are all completely and solely dependent upon the mercy and steadfast love of God to have our sins removed from us. We think, I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm worse than that guy. We're all in the same circle. We're all here, Psalm 51, 3 through 5. I know my transgression, my sin is always before me. Just like David, you can make that same statement. Against God only you've sinned, done what's evil in his sight. But God is justified by calling you righteous because of the work of Christ. Let's keep going. Verse 6. On the screen is going to be verses 6 through 12. And I've italicized, I hope it's showing up up there, uh, a few words to, to bring these thoughts out to us that this is God working and not us. Verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God, this is, this is repentance here. Again, it's not something you can muster. It's something that God has to muster in you. He's the active, you're the passive. Look at all the active words for God and the passive words for us. Purge me with hyssop, and then I shall be clean. Because you've cleansed me, I'm passive laying here while you wash me. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. The statement I made at the beginning that when we apprehend sin, we apprehend our own sin, we can't help but rejoice. God has broken us. God has broken David. But without David's brokenness, Psalm 51 never happens. We're not here remarking at the the glory and grace of God. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice because they've caused us to see your face. Verse 9. God, hide your face from my sins. God is active. Blot out all my iniquities. God is blotting out your iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And this is, again, this is not something like David is, is like convincing God of something. David is convincing David of something. I know this about you, God. I know you are willing and able to do this. Just do it. Create in me a clean heart. I can't do it myself, God. You're going to have to do it for me. Oh, God, renew a right spirit within me. Again, look at all the action of God. Cast me not away from your presence. When was the last time you came to a, the you encountered your own sin and you said to God, God, please give me yourself back. This is what David is saying here. He's seen his own sin. Nathan has confronted him with his own sin and it's awful. And the consequences are, will remain forever. And David's plea is, God, don't leave me. This is how to repent, beg of God to act. 
It's so important for us to come to full understanding of what it means to repent and beg of God. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I don't know if you're like me, but when I'm wrestling with sin, when I trip with sin and it breaks my heart, or worse yet, I don't really care. I need Psalm 51 to lift me up, to direct my eyes, to snap me from my selfishness. Without Nathan walking into David, David remains in this trying to cover up his own sin. And that's why this is so vital, why we've preached community from the very beginning at this church. Because we all need Nathan. And more than that, we all need to be Nathan. Because this is so important. Because the result of this, the result of Nathan going to David is Psalm 51. The result of Psalm 51 is God dealing with David to bring him back joy, to bring him back on his mission, to bring him back life, and most importantly, to bring him back relationship with God. That's why we're here. Don't be confused. There are a lot of great things for you to be here, to live your life on mission, to serve this community, to plant the gospel into North County, to do all those things, to, to raise your children well, to, to love your spouse well, and all those things, and, and to work hard, and those things are all great things. But the number one reason that you breathe is to be in relationship with God. And the only way for that to be what it's intended to be is repentance. And repentance is not in you. This is all you do to repentance. God, I'm broken. Help me. And then pray stuff like this. Remind God of who he is. Remind yourself of who God is. And then here is the result. Verse 13. This is David having repented, having, having said all of those things in, in Psalm 51, 1 through 12. This is the response of David to having God show up in repentance. Verse 13. Because you have done this to me, I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will return to you. This is David's mission. We receive our mission when we repent. David's mission is to treat, teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. You're going to get a chance to do this one in just a second. I'm going to stop talking, then we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing songs to God. As we repent, we worship God. It's just one after the other. It's B comes after A. It's two comes after one. This is the response. What do I do with my life? What is my mission? Well, repent, throw yourself on the mercy of God, and then let him tell you what it is. How do I worship? It was weird to me. Well, repent and let God tell you how to worship. Verse 15. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is 
our, our mission, our worship, and our sacrifice flow from repentance. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure and build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings then bulls will be offered to your idol. That's weird Old Testament stuff that doesn't make sense to us in our culture, but ultimately here's what it means. God will give you purpose. When we repent, God shows up with himself, and then God gives you purpose. When I look around in my life and look through my my old journals and see a, a despondency and reflect upon that despondency and, and all the stuff around those journals, it's, it's when I just don't feel a sense of purpose. Why am I here? Why do I do what I do? If there's despondency in your life, chances are it's because you just don't sense a, a purpose. Why you're here. And as we see with Psalm 51 in the life of David, it all starts with Repentance. And here's, here's the thing. The reason why I think Luther is exactly right when he says all of life is repentance and why all this is true is that we think of repentance as us asking God for forgiveness and him giving us forgiveness and us being really sorry and that's repentance and it's done. But all of life is repentance because repentance really means changing us. We are in this shape and God is making us into a different shape. God is changing us always, every day. Are you more like God yesterday than you were, more like God today than you were yesterday? Repentance is happening. You're being changed. If you're the same as you were yesterday, repentance is not happening. You are staying the same. And everything in your life flows from this. Let's pray and we'll be done and we can sing and respond. God, I thank you for the angst that you've placed in my heart for this message this morning. I thank you for how you've changed me. God, I pray that you would take this mess that I've made and bring glory to yourself and bring change in the hearts of these people. God, may we take seriously our lives. May we take seriously our sin. God, I want to know you. God, and this is the path that you've laid before us all to know you, God. God, show us, teach us how to repent, how to love you, how to be grateful when you show us our own sin, when you allow us to apprehend our depravity. God, cause us to not be sorrowful in that moment, but be exclaiming praise. Because we've seen the greatness of your mercy, the greatness of your grace and your love. God, remind us of the security of our hope. 
Father, dwell with us now. God, make this not be some typical time of response, Father, but instead, may we deal with you, or better yet, may you deal with us, Father. Block out distraction. Bring us to repentance, Father. Break us, Lord. God, bring Nathans into our lives. Because this life is about knowing you, Father. We love you. We give this time over to you. In Christ's perfect name.